Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and vending machines. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 331. And before we get into this podcast, you need a job? We all need jobs. Go to macfab.com slash jobs and apply now. We want you. And right, any, what's up, any, any particular jobs you want to showcase? <laughs> uh, we got engineering jobs. We got sales jobs. We have uh, line operators. We have everything. I saw just the other day you guys had a um, uh, test engineer position. Uh, yes, we have a three, uh, I believe. Test level three, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is like senior level ish test engineer. So, very cool. So, um, I, I ran into something that I'm using in a design here, and I wanted to showcase it because I think it's pretty cool. Um, so the company Neutric or Neutric, uh, I've I've actually heard it been pronounced both ways. It's spelled looks like Neutric, but I've heard a lot of people call it Neutric, and I've always said that. Neutric sounds like something you'd get at the health aisle at your grocery store. Okay, well then we'll go with Neutric on this. I've I've called it Neutric my entire life, but like just in case. Uh, so Neutric has a type of connector called uh, EtherCon, which is like a standard. Well, it looks like an XLR style beefy metal connector on the outside, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's an RJ45 on the inside. Um, and the cable typically that you get with it is like a nice rubberized. Uh, beefy cable so it's almost it's it's like uh it's it's not armored per se because it it's not an actual like uh like uh, metal sheath around it but it is a much much beefier version of an rj45 with really nice like xlr style like kachunk uh clips yeah into so, it, so. so i'm looking at that because usually on a rj45 you have the little plastic tab and um, those always break. And they started putting those, like, the boots on those Ethernets where they have, like, the rubber cap that, like, protects it. Yeah. Which are really annoying because you can never really, like, disc. I hate those so much. I always cut those things off, the uh, the rubber boot that protects the plastic tab. It's, like, the most annoying thing ever. Oh, yeah. Um, so how do these positively attach, then, if they have a metal cylinder around the RJ45 connector. So whatever the mating connector is on either your PCB or uh, chassis or panel or whatever, it actually has a locking tab on it. And Oh, yeah, um, it looks like just like XLR then. It's it's right there. it's effectively an XLR with an RJ45 inside. And and their name for it is EtherCon. Uh it also they have versions that come uh with a rubber what boot. What date is EtherCon? <laughs> Con Con, it's the convention of connectors. Uh, it's uh, so they offer um, a one with an IP65 rating on it too. So if you need some like splash proof and dust proof, no, so it's got a little seal there, just a little seal. Yeah. So I'm using this for uh, a new design there where I want something that's rugged uh, enough that like if people go walk around and step on this, or if there's like a AV cart that's rolling al along and rolls over this. It's not gonna get beat up like a like a Cat Six cable would. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't want Cat Six to be the solution for my product. So I found this, and it's nice because it's shielded, and then I get eight conductors to play with on it. So uh, I just wanted to showcase this because I think this is a really cool little product. The only downside is it's not cheap. These cables. Oh, are I wouldn't imagine so. 
These cables are pricey. It doesn't look like their connectors also support a normal RJ45 too, with like the plastic tab. Yes, yeah, actually, so th so what's nice about it, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why we chose um, this in the product is, uh, you know, w when when you purchase from us, you, you get one of these nice cables, and it's and it's great, but let's say you lose it, and you, you're in a bind, and you need, uh, you need your application to work, you could still just throw a regular Cat6 cable in it, and it will function. You can just go down the radiant, wait, no, you can, oh, fry, no, 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 uh, where can you, Best Buy. Actually, so the funny thing is, if you, you go get, try to buy a Cat up? Six, if you try to get a Cat Six from Best Buy, you'll probably end up spending the same amount of money as <laughs> as this nice EtherCon uh, that I got off of Amazon. Monster Ethernet. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Nitrogen infused Ethernet cables. Cryo crystalline aligned digital internet. <laughs> digital internet. <laughs> oh man! Oh, so earlier this uh, reminds me. So earlier this week. Um, we didn't record the podcast on normal Tuesdays because my internet went down. It actually went down last Friday, um, which was a, a bummer because uh, Steve and I have like a video game night on Fridays and um, my internet was down. So I had a game over 4G internet, and which usually isn't too bad, but the 4G at my house is not the best either. Like it's like one and a half bars. And so like I'm just like rubber banding around the levels, right? Um, we still did okay. <laughs> still, we still beat that level yeah, somehow. Yeah. Um, anyways, the uh, so what happened was uh, the I have fiber internet in my house. The junction box uh, for the fiber internet uh, apparently something bad happened to it on that Friday. Okay, they fixed it Saturday morning, but it didn't fix my internet. Okay, like so they. <laughs> AT&T has this like app that will show you the service outage. And it was like, at first on Friday, it was like my street was the only thing. Saturday, it was like my house was it. <laughs> <laughs> it actually drew a bounty box around my house. Um, and so I finally got tech out this morning, Thursday. So it took six days. Um, Cause we had a long holiday it was Memorial day weekend. Um, they had no techs working. Um, not too big. I, it wasn't too big a deal. I still had 4G, and I still could like do work, uh, work and stuff like that. It wasn't too bad. The um, so what happens when they repaired the box? They put my fiber into the wrong plug. That's the entire issue. <laughs> that was the entire reason. The guy oh. showed up at actually the tech showed up 15 minutes early this morning, which is like the first time that's ever happened. Usually they're always late, right? But so they sh he showed up early. And he goes and he basically like tests the box and he's like, okay, the box is good. And then he put, has this like little meter thing. He plugs the fiber into it, I guess, to see if it has signal. He's, he said, there's no, he says there's signal, but something's really weird about it. And so he, what he did, he puts basically a really bright LED. It's like a little test pin, bright LED on my end of the fiber. And he drove down to the end of the box and basically found the one that's really bright and then plugged it into its right socket and he's like yep that fixed it and that was it it was seriously 24 minutes to fix it <laughs> that's yeah, well that's amazing <laughs> and if i would have it's like something i could have fixed if i knew that was the problem right mm -hmm. yeah i would have driven down there and just opened the box and fixed it <laughs> <laughs>
that's uh, that's interesting. I guess they have ports that are like these ports work. These ones don't. Don't plug here. You know. Yeah, I, I, it's probably I was just plugged into the wrong port for my my connection, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, th- this is great. Craft Lab in our Twitch chat says, "Did you disconnect the fiber line and let the light drain out?" That's what a tech once told me to do. No, my tech was knew what he was doing, and he was like in and out. And again, twenty. It took him twenty four minutes to fix it. All the stuck light, you have to you have to let it drip out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we've um uh we've had some interesting uh issues at work in the last uh, probably two or three months, and um I've I've seen this before one time in the past, but it has creeped up at work a little bit more often. So uh, the, we've been having some PCB issues. And when I say like having PCB issues, I'm talking about this is like one in like 3,000 kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I'm not talking about like huge, massive amounts of failures, um, but this is a really rare failure that, uh, like I said, I'd only seen before once um, called Black Pad. Uh, which we had at at Macrofab one time, and I remember because it was like it was incredibly obvious uh, the black pad because the, the the actual yeah. pads on the PCB kind of corrode and they turn the, yeah, the blackish the, color. The, the finish um, oxidizes, and those were on those were on a customer supplied board, which is why we stopped accepting customer supplied boards. <laughs> well, and 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 here's here's kind of what's interesting is. So we buy our boards from a, a reputable source. I'm not going to call out the name, but like if I called it out, you'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, those guys, they're good uh, kind of thing. And so um, we noticed that these boards that we had in a batch that was basically right after things started opening up with COVID, we had, we had purchased them and, and they sat around for a while and then we utilized them. Uh, those particular ones, we had issues on it. So... Let me let me let me kind of give a little bit of a description of of black pad. Basically, what happens is the pads corrode, and the the characteristics of paste being able to wet the pad or wet whatever metal that just goes entirely out the window, and solder doesn't stick to it at all. It doesn't wet. It doesn't flow. It just balls up and rolls off. Uh, and the problem with it is with the units we have is. Perhaps I'm mischaracterizing uh, it as by saying black pad. It's because these pads are not actually black. They're still nice and gold, golden and shiny, but they do everything that a black pad would do. Mm. So um, it's almost as if there is like a clear varnish over the pads. They that co- is, they 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 uh, conform. They pre-conformal coated your boards. Maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> sprayed right over it um we, we instead of calling it black pad we just call it the plague uh at work and and um some of and it's interesting because it's not entire boards it's sections of boards so i've i've identified about four or five of them where the board solders great but there's an area where you know three or four legs uh, it looks like it, it initially it looks like our our stencil machine didn't place enough paste or didn't place any paste so it's like okay cool throw it under a microscope and uh and you know put some new solder on it and you put your iron on it and then you put your solder and it just balls up all over your iron and it will not stick to anything 
Um, and and do, do they look any different under like a microscope? A little bit, just a little bit. They don't look like discolored, but they look uh, a little more dull. Let's put it that okay. way. Okay. So they do have like a slight oxide layer forming on them. Yes, but not all the way to uh, black pad, and okay. and I don't think black pad is fully defined or super well known because I think there's a the hand. Uh, it's a catch-all term because I think it, it, uh, there's a handful of things that can um, cause it. But uh, but effectively, what I've read is that um, when the gold plating is going down, uh, the nickel content underneath, if that is off, you can actually get some kind of a reaction that causes black pad to to occur. Um, and one of the purposes of gold plating is to give this nice. Uh, flat surface that things can wet to very easily, but if it's contaminated with with excess amounts of nickel, then it loses all of its wetting characteristics, and the 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 excess of nickel is what oxidizes. Um, but in these units that we have, it must be like right on the edge. It must be like right before like actual physical vi visible black pad occurs. Because what's interesting is we can take the end of a exacto blade and you can just lightly score the surface and expose some of the base material and then you can solder to it, hmm. uh, which I don't like doing that uh, for production level boards because you're actually compromising what was there. Uh, and I don't like the idea of potentially opening up a base material uh, and, and leading towards uh, potential corrosion issues later on. Uh, getting rid of that, uh, the you know, enig coating on pads is not necessarily a good idea. So we're not uh, we're not going to ship any of these boards. But it is interesting um, because these boards came from batches that were right after COVID, and I think that there were some quality issues. That yeah, that's, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Because um, remember the the boards that we got from that customer, and we had to build. Man, this is like six years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, we fixed it by a rubber eraser. Yeah, right. We just rubbed a pink eraser over over the pads, and it it removed enough of the oxidation to let the let it reflow. So. Right, right. But that's a very gentle way of doing it. It's yeah. it, it's still mechanical abrasion, I suppose. Abrasion, yeah. But it's not like scraping the scraping it off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think we. How many did we build? Like twenty, like that, or something like that. Something I don't. Like I don't remember. Long. And 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 I I do remember when it happened at Macrofab the uh, uh, the manager, the, who was a operations manager at at the time he he he'd been doing contract manufacturing for fifteen years or twenty years or something like that and he's like I've seen this once before you know yeah it's rare and it's crazy too because like the pads visibly oxidize change color and then like good luck you're not nothing sticking to nothing solders to it yeah. Um. Yeah, because just that oxide layer is just won't the the there's not enough flux in the paste to go through it. Basically, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't eat through it. Yeah, yeah. So keep that in mind that you know the plague can happen and it's still not even visible. Yeah. Well, it sounds like I bet you if you left those boards out a little bit longer, they would probably start turning. Maybe I have <laughs> I have some. Um, I I well, I have one on in in engineering that is sort of my like. Uh, my example of the plague and so okay. uh we're, we're i'm, I'm keeping so people that. can a b test well and uh <laughs> I, anytime we have like weird issues like that I, I tend to hang on to them for training purposes uh mm -hmm. so we could show new operators and new assemblers and things where it's like 
Hey, if you ever find something where, like, it's just magically doesn't solder, we we have a, a definition for that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting is similar, well, maybe not similar, but definitely with paste issue um, that I am trying to figure out. And this is at one of, uh, this is with a stencil and something yeah. I've never seen before. And I've asked a couple of people and no one seems to really know what's going on yet. I haven't really dug too much into the why yet. Um, but we were basically having an issue where a a small BGA on a on a uh, product run, a certain section of the board of the panel would always have shorts on that BGA or not have enough solder. Shorts or not enough solder. Hmm. It was like it was consistent over so like if one unit had it on that that row all of them would have it on that row but it wasn't consistent panel to panel so it wasn't like a stent like a misaligned stencil like the stencil was bad like the apertures were off um so basically i spent uh part of my day today uh watching the operator making sure it was being done right and like i took the stencil and like aligned it myself over the panel to make sure that it was right and checked all the data files everything was fine we would run the stencil and it would paste beautifully yeah take it and it'd be like the perfect most perfect dots right where it should be the right size everything you'd run another one be perfect the third one it would have a skew all the way across the uh board and it wasn't wouldn't be like it was shifted like it would like it was in the y-axis so as it pulled across basically we're like a um well like if it was misaligned all the boards would be misaligned but this was the first board looked great the first row boards the middle row you can tell that it was slightly not aligned and then the last one would be like half off the pads of this bga or not on them at all hmm and so it's like it was stretched in that direction across and i've never seen that before sometimes you'll see like it'll be print fine print fine and then be misaligned and then you have to go and line it right but this is like it's like stretching the stainless it feels like um never seen uh, this before <clears throat> because you if you try... run the next board you won't even change anything about the machine run the next board and it'll print perfect that's so weird yeah it's so weird now it, so one it sounds like the, the the actual stencil, the way they built it, is perhaps a little springy. It's a standard 4 mil stencil. And it's yeah. not like there's crazy big apertures or anything that would... It looks like a normal stencil. Nothing is weird about the stencil. Um, one thing I'm going to try look at next is... What I want to do is, if I if we get one of those panels that's misaligned, clean it run it again does it happen again and if so i wonder if some of those have slightly different spacing on the panels for some reason and it mm. could go back to what you were talking about with like yeah. slightly different different quality control they built these on a slightly different line and there's a little more tolerance um metacolin in chat says what if it's slipping i don't think it's slipping 
well and and i had originally had that thought as well like okay so maybe it it, it gets past the first row of apertures and then grips and pulls it yeah but, but that wouldn't make sense because that would mess up the first row of apertures well and they if you ran and if you ran another uh stencil right afterwards it prints fine hmm. like well, without okay. changing the setup so i guess if it, it was if it was um redoing the fiducials every single time but i don't think it does the stainless the stencil fiducials every single time i think it does the stainless fiducials once and then it does the board fiducials every time of course because it's a new board so on our stencil printer at work we can choose the direction that the squeegee wipes mm -hmm. uh and typically we choose it it goes both directions so yes. you know it might it might wipe one way for one board bring the next one and it'll wipe the Wipes other way back way yeah but have you looked to see does it always happen in one direction that's that's again i have to start figuring out what's going on there with that it almost sounds like the stencil was put on the frame uh with some slack maybe in one direction such that it, it kind of um i would i would agree if if it always if it was every other panel so it always, when it wiped one way yeah it would mess up and then when it wiped the other way it was fine no it's it's it, it's random it is when it, it's always the same row so it's always when it wipes basically backwards away from you mm -hmm. um and it's the farthest one on that row uh, the farthest row there um that it happens on but it's definitely not a every time it wipes away, it causes it. So more investigation is required on this. I'll have it's an update. A, that's a weird one. It's a really weird problem. And basically what we are doing now is the operator just checks it, you know, checks AV1. And then wipes and redoes it if needed. Be. I don't know if they're I don't know about that part yet. Oh, OK, because th this was an issue that we found uh, it was, it was like last week it popped up and so we've been checking it now and I've, it's finally gotten to the point where I need to f finally figure out what's going on though. Cause it does happen. <laughs> yeah. It's only yeah. with this one product. And so I want to, I want to try, um, I need to figure out if it's recentering the stencil. So like, uh, is it looking at the fiducials every single time? Um, and if that's the case, then, um, it won't matter. That could be a slipping stencil then. Like the stencil is actually sliding in it. And then it, when it pulls in the new panel, it's recentering the fiducials basically. And then, um, but it, but if it, if it, cool. if the stencil slides while it's wiping, it'll mess up all your apertures. That's true. Yeah. Cause it, cause it will, it will slide that. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't so, do that because it doesn't cause, do that. That means the stencil stands still. Yeah. And so you're right, though, because because um, the first one row will still look really good and clean. Like it has really good release. It, could the board be slipping under the stencil? It, no, because it'd be it's it would have to go through the rail. <laughs> well, and and the board slipping under the stencil is the exact same thing as the stencil slipping on the board. Yeah, because you basically if, if the stencil or basically if any of them slip, um, you get like a paste smear underneath the only thing then the, the next thing is like okay so typically this the, the these machines bring the the PCB up to the stencil and make yeah. physical contact with it if for whatever reason this board was at an angle 
Oh, uh, if, for whatever reason, if it was angled underneath it, and maybe it's it's angled such that the you know when you're wiping from one end, it uh, that's the end where it's making contact, but then it loses contact as you as you wipe further, and then the mm -hmm. stencil actually does flex ever so slightly. Yeah, that could explain. And it wouldn't take much flex too. Well, those machines push really hard. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm saying it wouldn't take much flex to cause that mis that. It, it is not a lot of misalignment because um, when you look under it, like when you look at like the SOIC eights that are on this board, yeah. like you can tell it's misaligned, but you're like, oh, that's fine. That that's with an IPC. But you, you were saying spec. like half a pad of misalignment. But this is on like a 0.4 millimeter BGA. So half it, a pad so it's not is much. a lot. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's not a lot, but it's a lot for that part. For that part, for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so definitely more investigation required. I thought it was an interesting issue because you brought up an interesting manufacturing problem. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have this problem I'm trying to figure out right now. And and just out of curiosity, I mean, you guys are cleaning the stencil, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no, like, schmutz on the on the back no. side of the stencil. No, everything's fine that, there. that could cause a lot of issues. Yeah. That's 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 actually one thing is we that's what we first thought. Like, it yeah. was slipping. And it's like, no, the backside stencil's clean and the board's are releasing fine there's no smears and so it's like so and stainless doesn't stretch like that typically so. yeah uh, the stencils we get in they have like a plastic film coating on mm -hmm. on them if um if if that got ripped off but like there was just a little bit left that you, you didn't catch i'm sure you guys did but if 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 there was a little bit left that could cause a little bit of an of an angle because it wouldn't mm -hmm. be uh not making physical contact with the board yeah, so I'm, 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 my main theory right now is some of the panels are slightly different. <laughs> Blame the board house. <laughs> well, that's the next thing. That's the first thing I can, I can easily check that. I can, I have a panel on my desk that is one that got misprinted. I think I just left the paste on it. So I have to clean it off tomorrow. But, um, the, uh, and I'm going to, I will compare it to, a, uh, a, a one that printed fine and see if there's a difference. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the tolerance of the actual apertures on the board themselves, uh, you know, well, I'm, about I'm, just saying is, I'm just saying, cause you see it across the whole thing. I'm wondering if basically the spacing, the row spacing is different or like mm. the panel size is different so that that could be it. The panel size is slightly different. And so yeah. it, the pa the panel can actually shift right when it gets squeegeed. Yeah, and if you're not checking every board fiducial and every stencil fiducial every time, that would explain it. Well, yeah, yeah. And well, if it's looking if when it's looking for the fiducials, it's assuming everything else in between stayed the same, but right. if the boards are slightly offset differently, it's who knows what's going to happen. Right. That's my first thing I'm going to do. I'm not going to blame the machine yet because it's, it's like it works 99% of the time just fine. Why is this 1% happening this way? Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and you change no process. So Yeah, the process has been pretty good, rock solid. So speaking of really weird issues, though, <laughs> I, like, so I, I like this one. I found something on Hackaday today that just brought a smile to my face and I immediately sent it to Parker and uh, and he's like, oh, well, we have to talk about this now. Uh, so the uh, 
this is actually sort of in relation to uh, SMD assembly as well, but but a little bit more uh, SMD assembly by hand. The title of this is Effects of Moon Phase on Tombstoning Components, which... Let me just read the description here because I love this. It says, Many factors play a role in the overall outcome of PCB assembly, especially when very small components are involved. Broadly speaking, tombstoning is a problem with very small two-pin components, O201 caps and such, and we filtered out the following challenges. Proper paste application, component placement, designed for good thermal pro uh, properties of the PCB with regard to tombstoning, and moon phase i i love that there's like these like really practical things and then the phase of the moon so this project is actually testing to see if the phase of the moon like legit like the moon that goes around the earth has an effect on smd components tombstoning very small smd components which is amazing this is my favorite because i've read a lot of papers on tombstoning and like avoiding it and that kind of stuff. This is my favorite so far. Yeah, this is well, okay. And one of the things that, that actually strikes home for me on this, uh, and why I really like this, one of my professors at college, um, he was working on, he had uh, two major fields that he was focused on. One of them was self healing semiconductors. So, you know, a semiconductor that can get like an ESD strike and then mm -hmm. somehow repair that um, for space applications. And then the second application was the effects of the seasons and the moon on semiconductors. And apparently, it, there are measurable effects, according to this person, um, throughout the year. Semiconductors change based off of the seasons, and they change based off of the moon. Um, and it is something you can measure. Uh, now, I actually, before this podcast, I went and tried to do some research on that and find if like there were any of his papers, and I couldn't find anything. But uh, He never got published? <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, like, he's still on staff at Texas A&M. Um, but but he yeah he, in one of our classes he he was explaining it to us uh, and I found that really interesting where it's just like oh my gosh like engineering is always based like there's always a gazillion factors that you have to keep in mind yeah as an engineer now now you have to pay attention if it's hot or cold outside now right right oh it's springtime that's what I'm gonna tell my boss like I'm sorry my circuit doesn't work it's the fall you know it's the <laughs> like, fall <laughs> uh, it's it's uh the groundhog came out and saw his shadow. I'm sorry, my board doesn't work. My board doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So the effects of moon phase on tombstoning, um, there's uh, basically this this person built up like a little test board that they run some soldering test on every month, and it looks like for quite a while now there's been a log of testing every month on particular days to see if there's uh issues with it and it's great because like this log is just like every log entry is like no tombstones no tombstones no tombstones. <laughs> the, the problem uh, like i think one of the biggest challenges with do it running something like this is that um especially with hand soldering which i believe that this person's doing like you're adding so many of your variables and like your corrective variables into it mm -hmm. um it's so hard to do the same test over and over and over to actually see if the phase of the moon has it but i i kind of want to just like check in every like twice a year or something like that yeah. and see like has something happened 
So, this is fantastic. Kristoff, so, uh, if you're out there, we love your project. This is amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see if you get any results. I, I, really, I really dig the dedication to this. Um, there has been some where it's uh, not results, but things that's like, hmm, question mark. <laughs> but like, I think you need a ton more data before uh, there's anything that constitutes a result. Mm -hmm. Not yet. He's only been doing it. Seven, he has 17 tests so far. I like this one though. Um, I also accidentally use low temp pace on this board, so it's double cursed. <laughs> yeah, he's got some results going, so it's going to be interesting. Let's see how far Christoph will run this project for. I really hope this is one of those projects that's like a decade worth of. A decade worth? Yeah, it's but like, like the, I mean, why not, right? It's it's like the uh, professor that like what only cracked like one one set of knuckles in one hand and then didn't crack them in the other to show like if yep. any would get arthritis more and like nope there's nothing no no difference or um, as I crack gosh. my knuckles <laughs> what is that uh, gosh where is it let me let me look this up um, it, the it, was, it was it drop? was like the the slowest moving liquid yeah the tar drop yeah the pitch pitch drop pitch drop that's it uh where like they thought it was gonna like somebody like just missed it they came in like two minutes after it had dropped and it was like 80 years of between drops or something like that yeah the the pitch drop experiment that's what it's called what is pitch pitch is it's is it organic it's is like it super thick tar right yeah, something like that. I don't know. I'm not a chemist. Okay. So my next project I've been working on. Project Snacky. I think this is this is the the um, genesis uh, in terms of the podcast of Project Snacky, right? You haven't talked about this before, right? I haven't talked about this yet. Yes, yeah, so this is the first time I've been talking about it. I, I've been putting some stuff on my Twitter account. Uh, not my normal Twitter account, my DEFCON Twitter account about Snacky. Um, but what it is, is I am hacking a vending machine. Um, not going to say why. Um, maybe I gave it away with DEFCON, but um, what, I'm, I'm going to talk about like my hardware stuff I've been working on with it. Um, and I am going to be open sourcing what I design and build um, so other people can hack vending machines because you go online, you can type in like hacking a vending machine. Most people want to know like how to get free soda and snacks out of them instead of like actually hacking the hardware um, or like how they work. Uh, there's a couple of people out there that have made Arduino controlled ones, but they don't really have a lot of details on how they did it. So I had to do all that by scratch. Um, so I picked up on uh, Facebook Marketplace a vend net 3159 okay and uh that's a big snack machine it's like one of like five row wide monstrosities now uh my first thing i try to do 
was well i try to do it with a lot of products i'm trying to hack and this is, might be a a good hack for other people if they don't know about this is try to find the fcc id testing for that product because you can because all that product stuff is going to be unless they paid way extra money to make it private it's all public like government documents so you can pull up schematics you can pull up test diagrams like all this stuff like internal pictures sometimes you'll get component block diagrams it's awesome stuff um so the first thing i did was look on the back there's no fcc id on this thing and i'm like huh? there's no ul markings on this thing there's like nothing and i start looking up and it is like vending machines are like are they exempt i don't know if they're exempt but look trying to find the original companies that build these there's been so many buyouts mergers and that kind of stuff it's like it's like almost it feels almost like uh it's it's like it's weird i'll put it that way it's it's i don't know what to say because like you open it up and you find like five different companies worth of stuff in these machines like they're piecing together like stuff into a chassis almost like a computer really like you buy like an asus motherboard and nvidia graphics card and all, like different brand stuff that kind of interchangeably connects together um and there's actually another company called coinco which is not the real company but that's what they stamp everything it's like coin amusements redemption or something like that um i can't remember the exact name of it but they're actually here in houston which is weird hmm. um but this one is actually called Vennet, but you could also, it's like also FSI and also USI. Um, if you look up, like they're all under the same parent umbrella company, but you can't find any testing data about this, these machines. So you don't know how they really work. There is a schematic though, but it's basically the, the chassis wiring of yep. how the vending machine works and so like the circuit board is just a black box with connectors on it it just says controller yeah it just says controller <laughs> um but it gives you like wiring colors and that kind of stuff so at least you know how motors are hooked up and how the keyboard is wired up and that kind of stuff um but it's honestly like trying to find any other information about vending machines like about the companies and stuff is I've never experienced that before. Like tr I've always been able to successfully find information about products online. This <laughs> should, is the should first. we be calling uh, the right to repair people on this? <laughs> I don't I don't know. Well, it's not just the right to repair. It's just like it's weird of like finding like any company documentation of like this company these companies existing. It, uh, it's almost like a shell. I don't want to say that, but that's what it, it's, it's so weird. Um, anyways, I spent basically three days like or three evenings, basically like researching like the company, trying to figure out how to get information and stuff like that, because this is this is, by the way, this is not the vending machine they sell anymore. Um, it's like an older model, so there's no support or anything for them anymore. Um, so have to figure out everything yourself. So how does a snack machine work? Um, you press buttons on it. You, well, first you put coins in it, press buttons, and then it like 
vends if it you did the right combo of money and buttons you pressed on, right? Um, so what also what goes inside there? Like, there's a motor, obviously, right? So how do you think that motor works? How do, how do you think it knows to only dispense one snack item? I'm guessing it's a timer, right? It's not a timer. Okay. Because if it's a timer, what if you have different weighted snacks? And so it, it takes longer to vend because it's slower. Well, but but I thought like whoever was loading them uh, would give information uh, on what. Well, what if there's only them. one item left? It would be faster. So you'd have to you'd have to program a curve. <laughs> um, so how they work is well, you could have. I thought there was going to be like a stepper motor, right? Yeah, and you would just rotate three sixty. Are they just DC that, motors? They're just DC motors. With no feedback. So is no there some kind of wires. like dropper sense or something like that? So how it works is the motors, there's actually a little diagram uh, in the schematic that details how the motors work. Okay. I'll, I'll post a picture of that. But what happens is there's a switch in the motor. And every rotation, it clicks the switch. Well, there's no wire that goes to the control board to know that the switch was pressed. What that switch does is um, it disables a current path through a resistor. So every rotation, there's a drop in current. And so basically there is a current monitor or current sensor on the control board itself. And so that's how it knows it went run rotation is you, it's looking for a current edge drop. Um, so it knows how much of a rotation it's done based off of counting that? Yeah. So if it goes, okay, I start, and it's going to be at a low current because it, the switch is currently tripped. It comes off the switch, the current goes up, and then it waits till it sees another drop in current. And we're only talking like 10 milliamps here. Mm. Like it's not, because these are like 12 volt motors that pull uh, 110 amp hours and uh, not amp hours uh milliamps i should say uh, so they don't pull a lot so mm -hmm. you're only looking for like 10 uh milliamps of like change um there and uh that's how they work it's mm -hmm. looking for a current drop so it's they put a couple extra dollars and parts on the board to save all that wiring of basically i guess you'd have to have a control circuitry to read the switches if you were you had a whole array of switches so maybe that's the trade-off is less wiring and you don't need to have a switch matrix controller does that but, board have any indicating marks on it or part numbers or anything like that it has part numbers for components and these are i, I put some interesting because i was looking up the parts um so these are some of the interesting ones that i did some research on um I had to to figure out how this board worked. Um, there's a UCN 5890A and UCN 5842A, which are, I think those are Allegro parts. And Allegro doesn't make them anymore, but they're shift register current drivers and sinks. Hmm. So they're like an eight channel, both are eight channel shift registers, but they also have current like big old current drivers so you can drive motors directly off a shift register whoa kind of a cool idea and so that's how the 
motors work. So it's a big array, uh, matrix array of motors. And so you have like eight wires that go out for the drive, and then you have eight coming back as sinks. And depending on which ones connect is which motor turns. Um, kind of a cool idea. Reduces wiring a lot. Just increases drive complexity on the software a bit, but that's you know nothing for uh, modern modern electronics. Um, the main controller on here was this was so I was hoping to do. What I wanted to do was just take the board itself, take its controller off, put my own controller on, like a let's say a, a, a Atmel Sam D. Um, and then drive the rest of the peripherals myself. Well, I didn't know. How, I was hoping basically to find a schematic through the FCC ID system, and then I would know how the board would work. It, since that didn't happen, I would have to reverse engineer the entire board. And there's a lot of parts on this. Yeah, board there's a lot. I don't know what it does. Like, the, so the clock signal for the shift registers that do the motor drivers go through a a non-inverting buffer like four times. I don't know why. Why uh, is that a thing? I don't know. Well, are they going all over the board? No. It, it, I, I traced that clock. I thought it was, I thought the clock was going to come back to the control board of the controller, the MCU that's on here. No, it goes through this buffer chip that's on the other side of the board first. It goes through it four times and then goes back somewhere else. And when I found that, I'm like, okay, screw this. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not reverse engineering this board. Um, yeah, that sounds awful. But I I was looking up like the, the controller. I think this is an ASIC. I can't find a lot of information about this part, but it's a SC529136CFN2. It's a Motorola. It might be a microcontroller. Um, it might. It, it, it's a weird part because there's not a lot of information about it. And also it's branded CoinCo. Which builds a lot of the components that go into these machines, CoinCo, Coin Amusement, or whatever. Um, they build a lot of these things, um, and there is a EEPROM, like an actual legit EEPROM with a sticker over the window. So it might even also be a FPGA, and that's his configuration stuff. You know, how, how um, old is this? This is a circa two thousand. Okay, I think it's two thousand. Um, but yeah, that oh man, that's the edge, edge. So all these parts are like like all the mechs that are inside, like the coin return, the bill acceptor, this board itself are labeled Coinco. Um, and, and actually, the only manufacturing on the board itself is this chip. It says Coinco on it. Everything else is not branded at all, and like the part numbers are like super obscure for like the board itself and. I couldn't really find any direct matches. They call this like in the in the vending machine um, world. Like I found some forms and started search, like really digging in. It's called like an SM6 control board. Oh, so you've actually found information about it? Yeah, I mean, people basically people looking for replacements of this board is hmm. the only kind of information you can find. Um. So yeah, I don't know if it's an ASIC. I don't think it's an ASIC because it has this big old EEPROM next to it and the ASIC wouldn't need to be programmed. Um, I don't think it's a microcontroller. 
Because you also wouldn't use a <laughs> EPROM like that for it around this era. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking this is, might be an FPGA-style controller, and that's its configuration um, possibility. The other interesting part um, is by ST, and it's an M46T18-100PC1, which is a lithium battery RTC built in, like, in a dip package. It's freaking crazy looking, too. It's like this big monolith component. Um, I'm actually thinking about basically desoldering that and using that, like, my other uh, like another project because it's such a cool part um yeah it's a it's a weird this is just weird stuff steven like there's so much about this that the, this board that i want to know how it works but man there's so much reverse engineering to, involved in it okay so instead yeah. I, I decided to build my own board <laughs> I, so I okay yeah I I I found this your board now I, the Snack Mart six uh, yeah from Snack which Software. is another brand by the way that Snack Mart is a different br- another brand huh. but this is a Vennet and when you actually open it up it says FSI on like the sticker that's inside the machine well but but okay so Vennet is the manufacturer of the whole machine but not necessarily the board. Correct. They, they bought the knows? board from wh- whoever, Snack Software. Coinco, apparently. Possibly. Yeah. Vendors Tech. Or Vendor... Yeah, Vendors Tech. Oh, the, that's the, the website I'm on. Never mind. Yeah. Dude, there's, you're going to go down a big old rabbit hole looking at that stuff. Because like, <laughs> I was three days down that one. There you go. They, they have manufacturer's part numbers. <sighs> yeah, you're going to be down that hole a long time. Yeah, yeah. This seems like one of those ones where like the uh, the schematic would be very tightly kept. Because if, if, if that just got out into public knowledge and people could hack them like you're doing. But you, still, you can't get access to the board, though. It's inside the machine. So it's like, why does the schematic matter? Well, but maybe, maybe the schematic could tell you something more. Hmm, I guess. Anyways, I'm building my own board. Um... And uh, so what the first thing I did is I, I actually measured this board up and I replicated the board outline where all the holes are and where all the connectors should go. Um, and with the schematic that's actually in the manual, I knew what the pinouts of all the connectors should be. So that was a good first step. And then I was like, I got to control the motors. And uh, since I need to get this thing done really quickly... I, I, by the way, I started routing this or designing this board on Saturday, like the schematic, like nice. doing the schematic on Saturday, and I finished it routing it last night. <laughs> well, the silkscreen actually, I finished the silkscreen last night, so I finished the routing on Tuesday. Since we didn't have the podcast, I did routing instead. Um, so I, I basically like pulled parts, like of different projects I've worked over like the past 10 years to like make it faster. So first thing is like, okay, I already have an Arduino Mega layout. I'm just going to Arduino Mega. We got enough IO to do everything we ever want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then motor control. Well, I need a high side driver and a low side driver. Uh, Cause it's a matrix. 
Well, what have I done with Matrix? The pin heck board has a light matrix that is perfect. It has eight highs and eight lows, and it runs off a Darling Transistor low-level logic straight is off a 3.3. Like level. a ULN or whatever one of those chips yeah, are? Yeah, ULN 2803. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then it uses tip 102s and 107s, and I'm like, I got all those parts in my bins. Let's copy paste, ready go. <laughs> um, now I might change those to FETs, and I think I can just drop FETs into that design without a problem. I'm pretty sure. Um, I am going to test that because the darling, the uh, the tip 102s and 107s, while great, they do drop voltage because they're transistors, um, not MOSFETs. So um, I'd like to give a full 12 volts to those motors if I can, instead of like 10 point whatever it would be with the, with the uh, um, transistors. Um, I'm pretty sure I can just pop in some N and P channels and be fine, though. Um, I probably should check that before I order. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Yeah. Um, and then for current sensing the motors... Um, I'm actually using uh, INA2019 uh, high sensing, like op amp current monitor thingy from TI with a current sensing resistor. It's like a 0.1 ohm uh, jobby. And then, because I can get down to like one milliamp precision with that easily. And so I can easily detect my, my edge, my current edge. So. And then for the keyboard. Um, just it's a matrix, so just matrix scanning, uh, direct I/O to that. That that actually worked first try. I like plugged it into my Arduino and then wrote some little sample code, and I was pressing buttons and getting output. And I'm like, oh, that's perfect. Nice. Done. I was like, checkbox done. Do, uh, does uh, it have a VFD to display? Yeah. So unfortunately, um, the VFD. So I got it right here. Oh, that's is, cool. Is a discrete style, and and actually the uh, the driver chip I can look it up. The problem is, you need like half this board's power supply, this whole section, <laughs> to generate all the voltages that that VFD needs. It needs a bunch. It needs a lot of negative voltages to make that thing work. Um, and I didn't feel like doing that. And I have a nasty habit of going to like surplus supply stores and buying VFD displays. <laughs> So I have a, a huge bin of VFD displays. So I have a um, Noritake um, GU140X32F-7000 series basically graphical display. So this I can actually do images and stuff on, yeah. not just text like the stock one. Um, so this is going to be mounted in that same spot. I'm actually just going to depopulate the old display and then like glue this display onto it and so it mounts to the same mounting poles in the machine nice be good to go um already wrote the software to make that work that was easy um already wrote the uh the hardware is easy to make that work too it's just direct data lines directly to the microcontroller it handles all its own power so you don't have to worry about it um so yeah, I'm about to pull. I'm basically gonna make sure I can flip the MOSFETs on those those drivers, and if so, then I'm just gonna pull the trigger and go. Nice. This is a, it sounds like a really fast turn on this one. Uh, Saturday, Sunday, 
No, not Sunday because we played games on Sunday. No, did we play games Sunday or Monday? Uh, Sunday probably. Okay, so Saturday, Monday, and Tuesday and Wednesday. Wednesday was really just doing silkscreen adjustments. So yeah, pretty fast turn. Again, I was just trying to copy paste as much like stuff I've used before. And yeah. like, and though I like pull pull the parts, I'm like, can I go buy these parts now? Go check online. <laughs> so, and trying to reuse a lot of stuff I already had. Well, and you only need to make one board, right? I'll have to make one board. Yeah. So. Um. Hopefully, I'm, in two weeks, I have a working board to talk to everyone about and make sure it works. Uh, I, I, I understand because of the words you said earlier, there's some secretive stuff behind this. I'm really curious what you're going to be doing with it. Yeah. You probably it's, it's, can't talk about right now. Not, I can't talk about that part. I can talk about the hardware, though, and seeing if it works and that kind of stuff. And once this is all done and the firmware is done, um, I'm going to release all that stuff open source. Because mm -hmm. um, it would be nice to actually, like, have people actually talk about hacking these things instead of, like... It's very secretive. Maybe maybe people open source that they get the the vending machine mafia kills them. Vending village at Defcon. <laughs> so. Um yeah, I'm basically replacing the entire board instead of trying to I one one method I thought cuz you could um you could set everything to like free basically on the machine mm -hmm. and then you would just hack the keyboard input so you basically you would man in the middle of the keyboard input and so you would just like uh someone would type in a9 and then you would like you would your arduino would read that and then just send, send all the it right over commands. the keyboard here and yes. then it would and then this handles everything else i thought about that and i i don't know well, I yeah, why did you to, go that route that sounds easier <laughs> it could be but there's a lot more stuff we want to do Mm, I got you. Yeah. I thought about that a lot, though, and I'm like, you know, sure, but that doesn't sound as fun. As that's always your, a good backup, though. That's, yeah. Making your own board. Um, but that could be a good backup in case this catastrophically fails. <laughs> and for the most part, that's just software. I say just. Yeah, it's just software. It's basically the the big thing is making sure my algorithm of detecting a current drop is is adequate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think we adequate adequate. I can't pronounce that word. Adequately. Yes. <laughs> Such a, that's a weird word. Well, I think we'll wrap up the podcast. I think that's it. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, and the people in our live chat for listening to our podcast. And if you're not in our live chat, then thank you for downloading it. Um, if you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or know more about the secret world of vending machines, let Steven and I know. 
Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack. And the live stream is usually 6 o'clock on Tuesdays. That's Central Time at Twitch.tv slash MacroFab.